about 3,000 years ago, there was a shepherd named Jesse from a tribe called Judah. He and his wife got married young and lived in the land of Israel. Over the course of their marriage, they had seven active boys. As you can imagine, the house was very rowdy. Everything was loud. Everything got broken and fixed multiple times. They lived on this farm as shepherds, minding their own business. Until one day, the prophet of Israel came to their part of town. Now don't picture a prophet like a fortune teller with a crystal ball. Picture a wise and strong man, his brown skin burnt by the sun. He wasn't a delicate man. This prophet had been to battle. He had wielded a sword. He led Israel to victory. He was a leader in Israel, full of conviction. And Samuel was his name. Samuel had been there when the king of Israel was chosen. All the Israelites were begging God to give them a king. And God knew that these people wanted a king to replace God. So he decided to show them what they wanted was not all that great. God led the prophet Samuel to anoint a king over Israel named Saul. Samuel went to the tribe of Benjamin and anointed him by pouring oil on his head, as you can see in that picture. Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. The ideal king in Israel's eyes. Everything looked right on the surface, but things were far from perfect underneath. His kingdom was cut short very quickly. Instead of ruling under God's authority, Saul decided to do what he wanted and rule by his own authority. God communicated to Saul that God would tear the kingdom out of his hands and give the kingdom to someone better than Saul. But this shepherd, Jesse, from the tribe of Judah, didn't know any of those political dealings. He was busy with his sheep and his seven rowdy sons. So when he sees the prophet Samuel coming in the distance, he knows something important is about to happen. He meets Samuel, and Samuel invites Jesse to come to the evening sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. And he tells Jesse to bring all of his sons. Jesse is thrilled. Not knowing exactly what's going to happen next, he gets all of his sons ready, and he presents to Samuel his oldest three sons. God looks at each and every one of those three sons and says, no, no, and no. I want the youngest son, the last son, the seventh son, David. And Samuel may not understand it at the time, but he does what God tells him to do, and he anoints David as the next king of Israel by pouring oil on his head, as you can see in that picture. The only problem is that Samuel has anointed a new king, but there is already a king in Israel named Saul. Saul is still alive. He is still ruling over God's people, and he has a son named Jonathan. Saul has Jonathan's life planned out for him already. Saul knows that he's going to be king until death and then pass the crown to his son. That's how monarchy works. Saul doesn't know about any 
David character, any son of Jesse. Saul just can't come to grips with God's decision. He can't fathom that God would take away the kingdom from his family. He is king, and he is the only king in Israel. And when David was a nobody, Saul didn't have to worry about David. But then David started winning battles, lots of battles. First, David kills Goliath, this enemy giant that Saul was too chicken to face himself. And then David starts joining Israel's army for other skirmishes and battles. And Saul hopes that, you know, if David goes out in all these battles, there's going to be one he doesn't come back from. I mean, seriously, how many can he survive? As it turns out, David can survive all of them and not just survive, but win. Whatever mission Saul sends David on in the company of Israel's army, David comes back with another win under his belt. When David returns from these battles, Israel's women dance in the streets and they sing this song. Saul has slain thousands, but David slays tens of thousands. This eats at Saul's mind. He starts to obsess over David, lose sleep over David. He can't think about anything else. He's unhinged and he's out for blood. Multiple times, David comes into the king's court and Saul tries to kill him on the spot. There are so many attempted assassinations against David that David just leaves the capital city. He's on the lamb and out on his own. And you'd think for Saul, this is a victory. The competitor is out. He's in exile. There's no competition for the throne anymore, but Saul can't take it. He's obsessed. He's got to get rid of David, so he leaves all of his kingly responsibilities behind and goes on the hunt for David. He follows him out into, into the wilderness. He must catch and kill him. Now, eventually, Saul's son, Jonathan, starts to see this feud between his dad and his friend, so he decides to step in the middle. And you have to imagine for a second the dilemma that Jonathan faces. His dad is the king. He's responsible to his father, not only because he's his son, but because he is the anointed ruler of Israel. But he also has David, his friend, his best friend. He's caught in the middle of his deranged dad and the anointed one who will become the next king. So Jonathan creates a rendezvous. They're going to meet out in the wild, out in the middle of the field where they can talk in private. And as lifelong friends, they embrace. They weep together over this tragedy that they're experiencing. Jonathan is older than David, almost old enough to be David's father. He's like a mentor to him, and he can't stand that there's this feud between his father and David. So Jonathan and David decide to make a pact. Jonathan promises that if Saul is truly resolved to kill David, he will help David escape Saul's clutches. And David promises to Jonathan, out in the wild, with no witnesses, that if David becomes king, he will always be kind and loyal and faithful to Jonathan's family. Jonathan goes back into the city to talk to his father, the king, and Saul loses it. He demands Jonathan to tell him where David is, and Jonathan refuses. And at that point, Saul says, and I am quoting here, your mother is a whore. Shame upon you. 
you will never have my kingdom. And Saul says with absolute clarity, Jonathan, get someone to bring David to me so I can kill him myself. When Jonathan refuses, again, Saul picks up his spear and throws it at his own son. John, Jonathan barely escapes with his life, and he knows his dad is too far gone. There's no turning point for Saul anymore. So he fulfills his promise to David and helps him escape his own father. Now, God is not simply passively watching this story unfold before his eyes. God knows exactly what Saul has been up to and has plans to bring justice against this wicked king. Saul goes into a battle with the neighboring Philistines, and the odds don't look good. So in a last-ditch effort for divine aid, Saul asks God for help. Please help me win this battle, and God does not say a word. God says, you won't listen to me, so I'm not going to listen to you. You can figure out this battle for yourself. In a humiliating defeat, Saul is killed, and his reign over Israel comes to an end. The only problem is that Saul took his three sons into battle, including Jonathan, who dies with him. When David hears the news of Saul's death and his beloved friend's death, he weeps and weeps and weeps. Months go by, and David just rises to power. He can't be stopped. He wins battle after battle after battle, and all the tribes of Israel surround him and love him and approve of David. He has peace within his borders, and he has victories against external threats. David is the opposite of Saul. He rules over all Israel with justice and peace, north and south. He sits on the throne, and he is given rest against all of his enemies. And then, after all that time in the wilderness, after his exile from his people, after he comes to the throne, the first item on the agenda is his promise to his friend. He looks at all of his court officials and he says, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? And it turns out that Jonathan had a son before he died. His name is Mephibosheth. And he can't walk. And David calls for him to have an audience with the king. And just think about the position that this man is in. He is Saul's grandson. He could be perceived as the last person who has a right to claim the throne. He might think, I am being called before King David because David is trying to get rid of loose ends. Maybe Mephibosheth feels like he is walking to his own execution. He falls on the ground before David and he says, at your service. David hears the fear in his words and his response is, don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father. 
I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth says, who am I? What is your servant that you should notice? A dead dog like me. David doesn't even give that comment a second thought. He calls a servant and gives the commands to provide for his best friend's son. And so for the rest of his life, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of his sons. You may not know this detail, but David has many opportunities, had many opportunities in the wilderness to kill Saul. When Saul was chasing after David relentlessly, there were times where David snuck into the enemy camp and he was standing over Saul and he could have done whatever he wanted to him. But every time, David refuses to kill Saul because he says Saul is the Lord's anointed. God chose Saul to be king and David refuses to kill the chosen one of God. David made, made a promise to be kind to the family of Jonathan, and he fulfills that promise. But not only is he kind, he adopts this orphan. He offers him a lifelong seat at his royal table in the capital city of Jerusalem. He makes Mephibosheth his son for the rest of his days. Mephibosheth thought that he was a dead man, a dead dog, and now he is given new life. Because his king does more than he could ever ask or imagine. A thousand years later, a descendant of David grew up in a city called Nazareth. At about 30 years old, he began his ministry. And he did much more than people could ask or imagine. He loved to heal people who were sick. And there was one group of sick people he loved dearly. He would walk through the crowds of so many hurting people, and he would stoop down, and he would get eye to eye with someone lying paralyzed on a mat, and he would touch them and hold their hands, and they would walk again. He loved crippled people. This son of David is named Jesus. And he loved people whose bodies just couldn't or wouldn't work. He got so famous for his healings that crowds would carry hundreds of people on mats who were lame and crippled. And the crowds would just lay these people at Jesus' feet and he would heal them. He even told the rich people in these crowds, when you have a banquet, when you have a feast, when you gather people into your home, the people you need to invite are not the important people or your friends. You need to invite the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. He did not want the crippled just to be healed. He wanted the crippled to be included, to have friendship. I cannot help but see all of us, every single person in this room, in the life of Mephibosheth. 
we are all invited to have an audience with the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And all of us should know at some deep level, we're not worthy to be in the presence of the King. Our resume isn't good enough. We don't deserve to stand before him in all his glory and power, his love and his justice, his wisdom and his beauty. We know we're not worthy and we're worried about his judgment upon us. But when he invites us into his presence and he extends an offer we never dreamed about or could have asked for, he says, don't be afraid. I will restore you to wholeness. I will make good on all of my promises and you will be adopted. You will have a seat at my table for eternity. And he does this because he loves sinners and tax collectors, traitors and legalists. He loved to eat with prostitutes and prudes, conservatives and liberals. He always opened up his table and he says to each one of us, I will surely show you kindness. You can always have a seat with me. When he talked about heaven, he referred to it as a banquet or a feast. And I can't help but imagine a really long table set for a feast for eternity. I imagine all the souls of the faithful with seats open and marked just for them. I picture my grandmother always eating at the table of the king. Picture Olena Sloan always eating at the table of the king. I'm sure you can picture Dan Watson there and Bernice Hollifield and Lanny Henniger and so many who have gone to be with our king. This is the good news of our faith. Every single one of us is invited to sit at that table. And the most incredible news, the biggest surprise, is that Christ didn't just snap his fingers and give us tickets to this feast. He was crucified so that we would be invited. His feet were disabled, pierced by a nail to the cross. Jesus loves the crippled so much that he became crippled for us. He didn't just come to heal people like Mephibosheth. He suffered in his body like Mephibosheth. And Jesus goes one step further. He promises us that one day we would be raised from the dead. And despite all the decay and aging and sickness and mangling that our bodies experience, one day he will give us glorious new bodies. The prophet Isaiah says about that, those who will wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They would run and not grow weary. Just imagine that. One day, when we receive those new bodies, we will run with Mephibosheth and not grow weary. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you invite every single one of us, regardless of how unworthy we are, to sit and eat with you forever. We thank you for this good news. And I pray that those who are maybe hearing it for the first time would be overwhelmed by your love and your compassion and your grace. I pray that every single one of us would come to your courts and say, at your service, through Christ our Lord.